It's Tuesday the 26th of January 2021, day two of the Davos Agenda Week, and this is Radio Davos. COVID-19 caught us unprepared, even though the signs were all around us. We cannot afford to be similarly complacent when it comes to climate change. Right now, more than ever, we are desperate for hope. The world needs to pay more attention to longer-term risks. Asset prices, possibly uncontrolled inflation, and of course, the fallout from this pandemic. Safeguarding future living conditions and preserving life on Earth as we know it is voluntary. That choice is yours to make. Hello and welcome to Radio Davos on day two of the Davos Agenda Week. Every day we're looking ahead to the main events coming up at the Davos Agenda Week, the big issues, the big names, and we hope one or two big ideas. And each episode of Radio Davos includes an interview. Today we'll hear from climate campaigner Greta Thunberg, who's recorded a statement for us. And we'll get instant reaction to that, which will include ideas and opinions on the ways we might be able to prevent climate catastrophe. I'm joined by my co-host today, Gillian Tett, editor at at the Financial Times. Gillian, how are you? Very well indeed, thank you. I'm sad not to be in the mountains. Normally I'd be slithering around on the snow um, right now in Davos and being in Manhattan is just not quite the same. No snow in New York today then? Not right now. We had snow just before Christmas but right now it's just cold um, but dry. Well, the Davos Agenda Week started yesterday, and as if to herald it, we had a flurry of snow here in Geneva, where I'm based. Not in Davos, I'm at right the other end of Switzerland. Gillian, before we get stuck into day two, let's look at day one. I'm going to play a couple of the highlights from day one. This is the president of China who gave a special address. He's speaking here on international relations, a warning of the potential risk of a new Cold War. Multilateralism. It's about having international affairs addressed through consultation and the future of the world decided by everyone working together. To build small circles or start a new Cold War, to reject, threaten or intimidate others, to willfully impose decoupling, supply disruption or sanctions, and to create isolation or estrangement will only push the world into division and even confrontation. Xi Jinping speaking at the Davos Agenda on day one through an interpreter, obviously. Today on day two, we have more of a European flavour with the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, at 11 o'clock in the morning, Central European time. Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, at 1pm, and Emmanuel Macron of France at 3pm, Paris, Berlin, Geneva time. But not everyone at Davos is a head of state or government. There are plenty of other fascinating people, many of them well-known faces. Here's one of them, Anthony Fauci, who became globally famous last year as one of the leading US health experts. When public health issues become politically charged, like wearing a mask or not becomes a political statement, it is you cannot imagine how destructive that is to any unified public health message. And here's Dr. Fauci speaking on one of the great concerns at the moment, how effective vaccines might be against these new strains. The vaccines that we're using now will be good against both the mutant in South Africa as well as in the UK. Having said that, this is an evolving situation. So what we need to do and are doing are already looking at making upgraded versions of the vaccine that could address both 
the South African mutant as well as the one in the UK. So even though right now the vaccines seem to be able to work against them, we need to be prepared to upgrade and maybe even as a boost later on or as a bivalent vaccine that goes against both the wild type and the evolving mutants. Dr. Fauci speaking on day one of the Davos Agenda Week. Let's turn to day two now, Gillian, where the theme is industry transformation and growth. A little bit vague. So let's look at a session you'll be moderating this afternoon. It's called Implementing Stakeholder Capitalism. Stakeholder capitalism, one of those phrases people at the World Economic Forum use all the time, but other people might not be too aware of what it means. What, what does the term mean to you, Gillian? Well, one way to look at it, which reflects my own training as an anthropologist, is to say that the business world and financial world has been really dominated by tunnel vision in the last 50 years, where they just focused on shareholders and shareholder returns. And what's happening now is that business and finance is waking up and realizing that they need to have lateral vision. They need to look beyond their tunnel focus on shareholders and look at all the people who have a stake in companies and finance, employees, wider society, customers, supply chains, etc, etc. And that's the only way to really start addressing issues around the social and environmental footprint of companies. To be perfectly honest, this idea isn't new. Um, Klaus Schwab himself was talking about it when he founded what was the forerunner of the World Economic Forum back in the middle of the 20th century. Um, But it did get very much downplayed in the second half of the 20th century because of the ideas of people like Milton Friedman. So in a sense, we are going back to the future to try and redefine business. Yeah, so it exactly goes back decades, this idea. And it was in Klaus Schwab's Davos Manifesto of 1973, the idea that companies don't only serve their shareholders, but they serve their stakeholders. It's the other end of the spectrum from saying companies should just make as much money as possible for the shareholders. But what's what has happened, I wonder, in the last couple of years? Because it does seem to that pendulum has swung very much towards accepting this idea of stakeholder economy. Um, Something happened in 2019, the US Business Roundtable, a group, a lobby group, a very big lobby group of companies in America adopted in their statement of purpose, effectively, this idea of stakeholder capitalism. Could I play this clip? This is from Brian Moynihan, head of Bank of America, speaking at a World Economic Forum event in August about this issue. If you think about building back better or uh, a better recovery, a recovery that's more uniform, and has in it the the balance between people and environment and profit for shareholders, stakeholder capitalism, what Klaus has been talking to us all for 50 years. This is the best time because in the end of the day, we need to be relentless about this idea. If we believe the SDGs are important, which we have all said we do, and if we believe we have to make progress, and we believe that the investor community is just very focused on companies who not only do well for their shareholders, but do well for their stakeholders, there's not a better time to make sure that we have the metrics to measure that success so that companies are making progress can be recognized and rewarded. That's the combination we're working against, the combination of having the investors, the operators, and the asset owners all agreeing that we've got to make progress and build back better and all the different things we're talking about. And you have to have a measurement system that says who is doing that. 
And that's why the metrics are important. These are the stakeholder capitalism metrics, and they define what success should be. And they defined progress in the SDGs. And there isn't a better time to do it, especially now when you add to it the amount of fiscal stimulus can help us accelerate the move faster on top of everything else. So that was Brian Moynihan, head of Bank of America, speaking about the metrics to measure how companies are serving stakeholders rather than just shareholders. And Gillian, do you think that's an important issue? Because any company can say, oh, yes, we value society, we value the environment, we value our workers. But how do we know they're actually making good on those statements of intent? There has to be some way of measuring it, doesn't there? And I think this is something that's going to be discussed a lot at Davos Agenda Week today and other days. Well, the question of measurement is absolutely critical because, you know, when the whole ESG activism green movement started two or three decades ago, um, well, it didn't start completely then, but it started to gather pace, um, it was initially very much driven by um, people who actively wanted to change the world, um, nuns, Danish pension funds, um, a few wealthy individuals. And there was a sense that they were doing this because they were interested in radical change and it was really as much about science and society as anything else what's happened now is that esg has moved into the realm of risk management Um, companies and financiers are increasingly embracing it because they want to avoid doing harm to themselves not just avoid doing harm to the rest of the world and as a result there's a real need to treat this like any other risk management tool and to measure what's happening both in order to convince investors that companies are doing the right thing and also to convince their own employees and customers that they're doing the right thing, but also to show the board themselves how they are are not measuring up and tracking this type of um, issue. So what you're seeing is an absolute um, frenzy of activity around accounting standards. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's all pretty confusing and muddled in the sense that there are lots of different standards. They have lots of confusing acronyms. It really is alphabet soup. And it's very hard for outsiders to work out what's going on. But the good news is that there's a recognition that there there is a problem around the accounting standards now, and people are racing to try and put it on a more credible and consistent footing and to make it more readily understandable. And if that initiative gathers momentum, it will increase the chances that this extraordinary ESG revolution becomes sustainable in every sense, not just in terms of promoting sustainability, but in terms of avoiding greenwashing and the danger of a green bubble developing. And that's really important because financial innovation shows, if you look back over the last century or so, sorry, financial history shows, if you look back over the last century, that waves of innovation in finance are almost always initially accompanied with labor confusion, um, opacity, um, lots of acronyms, lots of rival competing innovations. And if you don't put that burst of energy into some kind of easy to understand framework and easy to measure system, then you end up getting scandals or the type of crisis we saw in 2008. And it's in everyone's interest to make sure that doesn't happen with the ESG boom. Can we think of an example of how how that would look in the real world? I mean, 
if you buy an airline ticket in the days when you could buy an airline ticket and you were invited to click a box that said, I'll offset my emissions, that money will be going somehow into offsetting. But how do we know it is doing what it's saying it's doing? Or if you're buying a green bond, you're trying to invest in something, for example, renewable energy. How do you know as an investor, how does a pension fund know that it's investing its money in something that genuinely is doing what it's claiming to do? Is that what we're talking about here? There's two or three different aspects of the green transparency initiatives. One is to make sure that companies are accounting for the cost of carbon emissions and carbon and the environmental footprint on the world in their own accounts. So you have all these initiatives underway under groups like SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which are trying to make sure that companies account for their impact and the resources they consume. That's incredibly important. And I'd say watch the issue of the carbon price because that's going to be one day, I suspect, as important for company accounts as something like LIBOR interest rate. So we can hear now from Mark Carney, who is the former Bank of England governor, who's at the forefront of this issue for the UK government as it goes towards the climate conference COP26 in December. There's now 500 major companies that have science-based targets, and there's a further 500 in the pipeline. By Glasgow, net zero transition plans will become the norm for large companies. Private finance will fund the initiatives and innovation of these plans, provided that is, provided that private finance has the necessary information and the tools and markets. And that's why our objective for COP26 is to build the framework so that every financial decision can take climate change into account. The second issue is to work out what happens when companies actually engage with the wider world and either try and deliberately invest into good things um, or basically run their normal operations and try and work out what their bigger footprint is through that too. And there's two or three things that are happening right now. One is that companies are getting better at tracking supply chains and telling investors and customers about that. So a company like Walmart, for example, is making strenuous efforts to try and measure the impact of its own supply chain. And eventually, probably you're going to get um, ways of consumers tracking this, be that through some kind of signaling system like a traffic-like system indicating whether a product is green, brown or whatever. Um, or simply by tapping onto a database to see the kind of footprint that the that particular product has. There's great interest in the fashion industry in that respect. Um, but also, you're going to be seeing more and more people trying to track and monitor what companies are doing when they claim to be doing good. That requires ratings, it requires surveillance, it requires oversight. And those systems are springing up now, but they're not springing up as fast as people would want. And that really is going to be one of the big issues going forward. Well, you mentioned supply chains. Let's listen to this from Richard Lesser, CEO of Boston Consulting Group, which has just published a report with the World Economic Forum called Net Zero Challenge, the Supply Chain Opportunity. It looks at ways companies can make big cuts in greenhouse gas emissions if they look at the whole supply chain from raw materials to the consumer to eventual disposal. Supply chain emissions are often several times higher than the emissions created in a company's direct operations. Take a fashion company, for example. The emissions it creates in the end stages of manufacturing are tiny compared to the emissions created along the supply chain, from cotton growing 
to dyeing the fabric to freight transport. While it's certainly a struggle to reduce emissions within some sectors like steel, cement, and chemicals, when these costs are shared across the supply chain, they become much more palatable. In fact, full decarbonization results in price increases of only about 1% to 4% for many consumer items. That's less than a euro on a pair of jeans. The bottom line is that when companies look beyond their own emissions and collaborate across supply chains, the potential to save our planet by reducing emissions rises dramatically. Austin Consulting Group's Rich Lesser. Let's move on to another World Economic Forum report that's sure to be part of discussions at the Davos Agenda, and that's the forum's annual Global Risks Report. Let's hear from Sadia Zahidi, the World Economic Forum Managing Director in charge of that report, and then we'll hear a comment about it from the head of Conservation International. This is Sadia Zahidi. I think what's become very clear is that the world needs to pay more attention to longer-term risks. We all saw what happened in 2020. One of the global risks that actually we'd been calling out for several years in the risks report became reality, um, the, the pandemic. And then, of course, it's created this aftermath of consequences. And that's what we really saw come together in the risk outlook for 2021. Um, we tried to look at uh, 10 years, but then look at short, medium and longer term timeframes. And what we found is that there are a lot of societal uh, fragmentation related uh, dangers that come up in the next zero to two years. Um, and that, of course, relates to the health crisis, but it also uh, relates to job losses, um, youth disillusionment. These are all factors that governments will have to contend with and will, will frankly make decision making harder. The second time frame, the next three to five years, that's where there's a lot of concern about the economic consequences of this pandemic catching up with us. So rising debt for governments, asset prices, possibly uncontrolled inflation, and of course, the fallout from this pandemic to specific industries. So the massive amounts of concentration that now exist within certain industries and sectors because smaller businesses have not been able to survive. Those are the concerns that three to five years out. And then when we look five to 10 years, Number one is, of course, the biggest existential threat that we all face, which is climate change and the consequences of that, nature loss and a number of concerns that relate to broadly the environment. The second one is a lot of concern about the collapse of an important state and possibly the rise of the use of weapons of mass destruction. And then in between these two timeframes, the medium term and the long term, is the continued threat from both digital divides, not having enough technology or having too much technology. The concerns that come from a lack of regulation of very rapidly scaling technologies. So that's basically an overview of the Global Risks Report this year. My name is Sanjan and I serve as the CEO of Conservation International. Now, I read the Global Risk Report every year, and it's not surprising that this year you find infectious diseases and climate change at the very top of the list. Frankly, I've seen them near the top of the list before. Both issues are clearly connected, and so too are the solutions. To truly avoid a climate catastrophe, we need to act fast, and we need to do two things. We have to reduce fossil fuel emissions. There's no way around that. But we also need to reduce deforestation. We need to protect forests. We need to restore forests and we need to improve their management, particularly tropical forests and mangroves. 
When we make those investments in protecting forests, not only are we blunting the impacts of climate change, but we also are reducing the risk of a future pandemic. It turns out that this pandemic, like virtually every other pandemic, came from nature. And good studies have shown that increased deforestation and our intrusion into nature increases the risk of a pandemic. COVID-19 caught us unprepared, even though the signs were all around us. We cannot afford to be similarly complacent when it comes to climate change. The good news is that if we take action now, we can get in front of both issues. We can reduce the impacts or the catastrophe that climate change is bringing, and we can reduce the risk of a future pandemic. M. Samjian of Conservation International talking about the World Economic Forum's Global Risks Report, which is an annual report based on a survey of experts, leaders, economists, scientists, business executives around the world looking at short, medium, long-term risks. Gillian, what's your take on the Global Risks Report? The Risks Report is interesting because it shows, as you would expect, that the question of pandemics remains um, very important. I mean, it'd be astonishing if that wasn't the case. But it also shows that climate change is very much on everyone's mind. And in some ways, that's not surprising, because if you think about the pandemic problem, the COVID-19, it's shown us three crucial things. Firstly, that science matters, and you ignore it at your cost. Secondly, we live in a very interconnected world where, again, you ignore the weakest link of the chain at your cost. Um, If you have a pandemic breakout in a poor country, you can't just ignore that and hope it goes away because it can come and affect you too. And thirdly, COVID-19 has shown us that actually behaviour can change in some surprising ways when there's a crisis. I mean, who would have imagined that in a city where I live, New York, everyone would be wearing masks? Um, It would have seemed impossible to believe just two or three years ago. And yet people's behaviour can change when they understand why they need to. And the interesting thing is, if you think about climate change, all of those three points are incredibly important. Because firstly, once again, you can't ignore the science. Once again, you can't ignore the weakest link in the chain. And once again, it will be critical to try and work out whether the population's behaviour will change fast enough going forward to really deal with some of the issues. People used to think that would be impossible to imagine, but maybe after COVID-19, we can actually see that populations can change faster in their behaviour than people think. Great. Gillian, thanks so much for your time. I know you've been very busy with your latest book. Could Could you just tell us something about that? Absolutely. Um, The book is called Anthrovision, A New Way to Look at Life and Business. And it's coming out in um, the summer. And it basically draws on my background as a cultural anthropologist um, who spent most of my career writing about finance and business as a journalist to argue a very simple point, which is that the 20th century was dominated by tunnel vision, by tools that encourage tunnel vision, whether that's economic models or financial balance sheets, or many of the computer coding systems that we've used to build the internet. In the 21st century, we desperately need to move towards what I call lateral vision or anthrovision and start taking a much wider view of the world. And in many ways, that's similar to what anthropology does at its best, which is to try and look not just at what people are talking about, but what they don't talk about, to try and empathise with others who seem strange and different from you, 
so that you don't just have the tools to build a better, more tolerant world, but also understand yourself better too. Wonderful. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for joining us on Radio Davos. Thank you very much indeed. And let's hope that next year we're actually in the snow. Yeah, see you there. You're listening to Radio Davos. You can hear us every day on the website wf.ch slash Davos Agenda. And you can subscribe to the podcast version on our Great Reset feed. Just search either Radio Davos or The Great Reset wherever you get your podcasts. Now on Radio Davos, it's time for our interview. Today, we're hearing from Greta Thunberg, the Swedish climate change activist who came to Davos for the last two years to tell business and political leaders, our house is on fire. Greta agreed to read a prepared statement for us, which you'll hear now. We decided to follow up on that by asking for reactions from other voices. So after Greta Thunberg, you'll hear from Ibrahim Thur, head of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, Jennifer Morgan, head of Greenpeace International, and economist Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard University. But first, this is Greta Thunberg. My name is Greta Thunberg, and I'm not here to make deals. You see, I don't belong to any financial interest or political party, so I can't bargain or negotiate. I'm only here to once again remind you of the emergency we are in the crisis that you and your predecessors have created and inflicted upon us, the crisis that you continue to ignore. I am here to remind you of the promises that you have made to your children and grandchildren, and to tell you that we are not willing to compromise on the minimum safety levels that still remain. The climate and ecological crisis can unfortunately no longer be solved within today's systems. According to the current best available science, that's no longer an opinion, that's a fact. And we need to keep this in mind as countries, businesses and investors now rush forward to present their so-called ambitious climate targets and commitments. The longer we avoid this uncomfortable truth and the longer we pretend that we can solve the climate and ecological emergency without treating it as a crisis, the more precious time we will lose. And this is time that we do not have. Today, we hear leaders and nations all over the world speak of an existential climate emergency. But instead of taking the immediate action that we need, they set up vague, hypothetical, insufficient targets way into the future. Targets based on loopholes and incomplete numbers like net zero emissions by 2050. Targets that equal surrender. It's like waking up in the middle of the night, seeing your house on fire, then deciding to wait 10, 20 or 30 years before you call the fire department while labeling those trying to wake people up alarmists. We understand and know very well that the world is complex and that change doesn't happen overnight. But you've now had more than three decades of blah, blah, blah. How many more do you need? Because when it comes to facing the climate and ecological emergency, the world is still in a state of complete denial. The justice for the most affected people in the most affected areas is being systematically denied. Even though we welcome every single climate initiative, 
the proposals being discussed and presented today are very far from being enough. And the time for small steps in the right direction is long gone. If we are to have at least a small chance of avoiding the worst consequences of the climate and ecological emergency, this has to change. Because you still say one thing and then do the complete opposite. You speak of saving nature while locking in policies of further destruction for decades to come. You promise to not let future generations down while creating new loopholes, failing to connect the dots, building your so-called pledges on the cheating tactics that got us into this mess in the first place. If the commitments of lowering all our emissions by 70, 68, or even 55% by 2030 actually meant they aimed to reduce them by those figures, then that would be a great start. But that is unfortunately not the case. And since the level of public awareness continues to be so low, our leaders can get away with almost everything. No one is held accountable. It's like a game. Whoever is best at packaging and selling their message wins. As it is now, we can have as many summits and conferences, meetings as we want. But unless we treat the climate and ecological emergency like a crisis, no sufficient changes will be achieved. What we need to begin with is to implement annual binding carbon budgets based on the current best available science. Right now, more than ever, we are desperate for hope. But what is hope? For me, hope is not more empty assurances that everything will be all right, that things are being taken care of and that we don't need to worry. For me, hope is the feeling that keeps you going, even though all odds may be against you. For me, hope comes from action and not just words. And for me, hope is telling it like it is, no matter how difficult or uncomfortable that may be. And again, I'm not telling you what to do. After all, safeguarding future living conditions and preserving life on earth as we know it is voluntary. That choice is yours to make. But I can assure you this, you cannot negotiate with physics. And your children and grandchildren will hold you accountable for the choices that you make. How's that for a deal? Ibrahim Chow, I'm the Executive Secretary of the UN Convention to Combat Desertification. My immediate reaction is to say, yes, I agree that science is clear that our planet is in danger, or rather we are in danger in this uh, small planet and uh, that it is, the time is now for action. And we at the UNCCD would like to offer some solutions that are based on nature, essentially based on land. You see, land use is one of the uh, contributors to climate change. Anytime you have more pressure on land, you emit carbon. But the contrary is also true. Anytime you restore land, you actually have it as a carbon sink. And it turns out that land is the largest carbon sink that we have right now uh, on Earth. So it is important that we consider uh, land restoration as part of the climate solution. But not only, land restoration is also means more food because we have a growing population in the world and we still have close to one billion people 
that go to bed hungry. So land restoration is also contributing to uh, food production, is contributing to poverty alleviation in the world and contributing to many goals of the Sustainable Development Goal. So we would like to just ask everybody to consider that any action, positive action they may have on land is actually a concrete con contribution to this combat against climate change that we are facing at the moment. COVID-19 has shown us the fragility of our economic systems and the vulnerability of people. The climate crisis is showing us the vulnerability of a planet that we need to survive. So we are echoing Greta's call for accountability. We can't afford any more empty pledges or accounting tricks. To address the climate crisis, we need real and immediate action. 60% of Japanese people want transformational economic change. And in many countries, including India, Mexico, China, as well as Brazil and South Africa, support for a green economic recovery is at 80% or higher. We need nothing less than transformational green and just recoveries that protect people and the planet, health and nature. So as more and more people are demanding radical change, I am hopeful that we can make real progress this year with a people's recovery. Most immediately, let's sure we get a people's vaccine. Environmental and social bodies should be able to impose sanctions and fines. Corporate accountability and liability needs to extend to all corporate impacts on people and the environment around the world. Trade rules, similarly, need to be revamped to put people and planet first. And at the national level, we need binding targets to at least have global emissions by 2030, and we need tax rules that ensure that the corporations and the rich pay their fair share. Well, Greta Thunberg is an inspirational person, uh, a historical character, and I think she brings our attention to that we are not doing enough. Um, I, I think there's some good ideas out there. I think if we can do zero net carbon by 2050 and it really happened, that would be great. Um, but there are a lot of people in the world who have no electricity still. There are people in places like India, which have coal, but nothing else and live, you know, very poor lives. And it's important to find an integrative response. Uh, again, you know, she, pushes us to do more to do now. And she's so right about that. Uh, you know, if she's wrong to any extent, she's erring in the right direction. That said, we have to have a concrete way to move forward. Uh, economists have long favored a global carbon tax. I mean, you can have other things like cap and trade like Europe has there. I don't think there is good, but something. Uh, we need something like that to create the incentives, uh, to create uh, innovation, to create, have people conserve. One thing to bear in mind is it's not enough for the United States and Europe to stop uh, polluting as much to get to zero net carbon. If your house is on fire, it's not enough to put the fire out in just a couple rooms. You have to put it out everywhere. I've proposed the idea of a world carbon bank to help give technological expertise, uh, to help transfer funds, to 
do something for the countries which right now have coal plants and, and they have coal, but not a lot else. That was The Economist Ken Rogoff reacting to a statement for the World Economic Forum's Davos Agenda by climate campaigner Greta Thunberg. Before him, you heard Jennifer Morgan of Greenpeace and Ibrahim Tior, head of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. You can follow the action of Davos Agenda on the website, wf.ch slash Davos Agenda, both live as it happens and on catch-up. My thanks for this episode go to Anna Bruce Lockhart and Gareth Nolan. And a huge thanks to Gillian Tett of the Financial Times. I'll be back tomorrow with more from Radio Davos with a new co-host, Ryan Heath, Senior Editor of Politico. But for now, from me, Robin Pomeroy, at the World Economic Forum's Davos Agenda, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.